Okay, that's going to do it for the local edition. We do need to be moving on. Just a quick uh, programming note. Well, first, actually, let's uh, let's just talk about this. Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York. RiverReporter.com. From the Women's Health Center in Holmesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Okay, so uh, this is the fifth Wednesday, so there is no Trailer Talk or Let's Talk Vets tonight. Uh, Trailer Talk will return next week. Let's Talk Vets the week after that. Uh, But coming up, we will hear the untold story of photographer and historian Jay Grammond and his project to record World War II stories from World War II vets as uh, uh, we've lost so many of those veterans. We'll be hearing that story in the second half of this hour. Uh, But up first... Uh, we're going to be rebroadcasting this episode of Making Contact, talking about the impact of COVID-19 on healthcare workers. And uh, we're doing this ahead of our community awards that is happening tomorrow. Information's at WJFFRadio.org. We are honoring um, the local uh, healthcare workers and healthcare heroes that have done so much for the community uh, all the time and especially during the pandemic. So let's get going with that programming. Special program tonight. This is WJFF Jeffersonville Radio Catskill. The following program contains material that may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Making, making contact. Making, 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 making contact. I'm Anita Johnson, and this week on Making Contact... The youngest patient that I lost was 20 years old, which was devastating for me because that's not my patient population. And I have children of that age. A lot of people are dealing with things that they may not want to talk about to your friends, to your family, to your coworkers. They just don't want to discuss it. There have been um, moments where um, suicide did, in fact, came into, into my mind. And I have had to try to, um, I bypassed that by focusing on my daughter. Today on the show, we'll hear from people who have been struggling to keep patients alive in the emergency room, striving to find work, and trying to balance parenthood during the pandemic. We begin with Amy Arland a registered nurse at the COVID-19 unit at the Kaiser Permanente Fresno Medical Center. Amy, considered a seasoned medical professional, had never experienced anything quite like COVID. When you work 20 years in an ICU, you build up a level of knowledge and experience. You're considered an expert because you've taken care of the same kinds of patients for so long. You know your stuff. And with COVID, it just threw a monkey wrench in all of that. We didn't know anything. And it was very frustrating and very scary because you don't know what's coming through the door every day and not every COVID patient is the same. Treatments were constantly changing and in the nursing field, especially in ICU, emergency rooms and very high stress areas where patients are always in crisis, um, we learned to adapt to change very rapidly. But with COVID, the changes were minute by minute, second by second. Guidelines were all over the place. We didn't know who to trust because everything changed on a dime. Keeping up with all the rapidly changing information about COVID was hard enough for Amy and her colleagues. But by the time the third wave of infections hit Fresno, California, Amy's COVID unit was completely overwhelmed. By that point, we were at 100% ICU mortality for our COVID patients. We were losing them all. And that was the biggest kick in the gut for us because we were throwing everything to the kitchen sink at these people. It's why, why isn't this stuff working? This was death on a massive scale. I mean, we went from an average of maybe two to three deaths a month in our ICU to having 23 deaths a month. Uh, I stopped counting after about the 175th death. Due to the rising number of COVID deaths and the ICU consistently being short-staffed, the responsibility of body disposal regularly fell on Amy. My patients, when they would die, would be in the middle of the night. And 
We did not have ancillary staff. We had no staff. We were short-staffed most of the time to bare bones, barely scraping by. So I would have to be the one to take that patient um, down to the morgue. And when the morgue was full, we had to take them out, outside to a refrigerated truck. And we would be stacking them like cordwood. As of August 2021, an average of more than 700 people per day continue to die of COVID-19 in the U.S., Many healthcare workers, like Amy Arland, continue to be overloaded by caring for COVID-19 patients. Globally, COVID-19 has presented unique challenges, leading to increased mental health issues among healthcare workers. There were many nights that um, I didn't think I could go back and do it again. You know, you only are responsible for two patients as an ICU nurse, and when you lose them both in one night, after you've given everything you've got and you really start to feel like what you do is pointless. Um, there were many times that I almost called it quits. I didn't think that I could do this anymore. I could be a nurse anymore. Um, I reached a really low point where I started to resent everything. I hated my patients. I hated the people I worked with. <laughs> you know, it was a pretty miserable few months when we hit our third surge. Um, and I said, if I survived this surge, that's it, I'm done. Deja Maynard is a licensed clinical social worker based in North Carolina. She offers perspective on the realities of trauma and grief. It is pretty much inconceivable, right, to imagine that she, you know, in particular, and all of the other, you know, uh, healthcare frontline workers who decided to, you know, push through, you know, who are still pushing through, it would be inconceivable for them to, to develop any kind of resiliency to sort of all of the, um, all of the things that make such a, such a situation like this distressing to continue their work. And I think in this particular, um, with this particular situation, you know, PTSD is about, you know, it's a, it's a trauma response in that the brain cannot be certain that any situation that is like that sort of initial trauma, that original sort of entry point of that trauma isn't, you know, is actually different. So your your brain and your body is responding as if the trauma is still ongoing. And in this particular instance, right, the length of the pandemic is kind of like this uh, subsequent re-traumatization, right? Like, this person is constantly in the same situation um, that, you know, caused sort of those initial trauma wounds. And so I think that trying to, trying to do our best as those outside of it, you know, this is kind of, we're sort of splitting the difference here because I am a therapist, but doing our best to try to, to try to understand, you know, sort of the depth and breadth of that is kind of where that that empathy and that support, you know, that, that genuine empathy and support, I think, can come from, you know, where we can really sort of make it okay for people to talk about their grief, right? The grief is immense. We understand grief absolutely when people pass away. But I mean, I, I often talk with my clients about needing to grieve expectations too. The loss of a safety net, you know, recognizing that before they could save most people to realizing that most people, you know, they're not going to be able to save. That is in and its own necessitates its own grief process. I was staying with some friends that, you know, renting a room out to me and my family and we stayed there for a while. But once things started shutting down due to COVID, they were getting scared themselves. So they basically gave us a month to move out. That's Derek, a pseudonym. He, his wife, and child found themselves homeless at the start of the pandemic. I couldn't find a place within the city, the area, or even the state that I could literally move to. Um, so I had to literally move out of state. And because I had to move out of state, I had to quit my job. I couldn't continue to drive back and forth, you know, from another state eight hours away just to get to work. I mean, even though there were a few places that were hiring, for almost every job I applied to, I got denied work. So it just made a bad situation worse. Before experiencing homelessness, 
Derek worked at Amazon in California. Then COVID hit, and the little bit of security he had was stripped away. In an attempt to locate affordable housing and greater job opportunities, he moved his family to Nevada, where the cost of living was cheaper. My first big, my, my first big concern was trying to find housing. Um, um, that's where I ended up where I'm at now, which is the um, budget suites. Um, it's like a hotel, but um, they rent either weekly or monthly. This particular place do bi-weekly or monthly. And I, and I mean, I like this campus better than where I was staying at before. Um, but now it's like trying to find work, which um, was difficult during the pandemic because there were quite literally no place hiring. And, and um, casinos were shut down. Um, so a lot more people were going on uh, unemployment. I mean, it did literally, at one point, the unemployment rate in the state reached 30%. Very recently, over the last month, you know, it, it has dropped back down to below uh, 10%. So I'm, I'm still trying to be hopeful. Since relocating to Nevada, Derek has had some successes. He found housing and was able to get some temporary assistance, but he has run into other challenges trying to navigate complex social service systems. I feel grateful for being able to get what we've been able to get. Um, and it's funny, after talking to lots of people in and out of the um, you know, government assistance sector and so forth, a lot of times they have said, you know, it's very easy for a woman and a child to be able to get assistance, but to include a man, it's not quite so easy because lots of times they can they think or consider that the man should be able to go out and get a job. Which for me, that really put a lot more pressure upon me to have to be the person to find work. They have to be able to provide for the family. And hearing that my daughter and wife would be better off without me felt um, it has a particular type of sting as far as how men are being supported. It's like I know for me for a while, you know, there's women's rights and women's empowerment and things are quite unfair for women but just doesn't mean you gotta make things unfair to men to help support women um, I mean I'm a man I'm trying to support women you know I have a daughter I have a wife I'm trying to do the best that I can to be able to support them but you know I am limited with what I'm able to do at this moment, and I need assistance. And assisting me is assisting these women as well. In this situation with, you know, losing his job during this period of devastation for many people, depending on what the logistics of their home was, but this could be many of us, you know, in these types of situations. Carrie Mackey Sr. is a psychiatry specialist. He offers perspective on feelings of hopelessness and vulnerability. This is common, you know, um, and I think what we need to understand, not only as, uh, you know, as people of color and, and men, but, you know, as a people in general, that people go through stuff and that it is okay not to be okay at times. I think we have this built up foundational structure around us of resiliency and feeling like, you know, we can't have any weakness. We can't have any moments of, uh, of fragility, but that's not the case for many people. You know, we have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to kind of make those efforts to reach out and try to seek assistance. And I think, you know, what was so demeaning in all of this was the fact that, you know, 
he put his pride to the side, you know, as a man that was the provider for his family and reached out for help. And then as a family, they were told that, oh, it would be better off if you weren't married, essentially, because more would be afforded to your wife and your child. Essentially, they said that we could take care of your family better than you could take care of your family. And that within itself is demeaning. That within itself is the is is the the probably one of the most in one of the easiest things that could make a man that is primarily the provider in his household to feel hopeless. I keep trying to keep my head up because I'm I'm afraid of having doubts. Uh, at times, I feel like um, when um, whenever I do have a doubt something bad happens. I feel like it comes in a form of, um, you know, if you start thinking it, it happens. So I want to feel optimistic, like, you know, the, the best is going to come and the best is just right there on the edge. And I know it's not that far, but it becomes difficult in, in seeing it being there. Um, but I have faith that it's there and, um, it's just a struggle in trying not to be so negative minded and putting myself back in a sad position and, and feeling sadness and being sad and, and being doubtful. I mean, it's a, it's a struggle. You're listening to Life During COVID on Making Contact. To stay up to date with our shows and get more information about the people profiled in this week's episode, visit radioproject.org. Now back to Life During COVID on Making Contact. For most parents, balancing children and a career can be stressful. For some, simple everyday issues can become magnified and seemingly insurmountable. For parents like Shanette Jackson, anxieties were heightened while balancing both work and parenthood during the pandemic. I was taking my Zoom call from my phone for this particular meeting because I had to pick up books from my children's school. And so I'm on my call with executive staff and and some other members of my team, and I'm thinking that I'm muted. I, well, I muted myself, and I told, was telling my children to put their shoes on because we had to run out and go pick up their books. And so my son kept asking me, why? Where are we going? Why do I have to go? Like, just put on your shoes. And I'm just like trying to whisper to him, just put on your shoes so we can go. And he kept repeating while I'm in this meeting. And at some point during this call, as I was moving around, I unmuted myself. And I did not know. And so he asked me one more time and I said, can you please go put on your blankety shoes? Thank you. And my boss says, um, Shanette, you know, the mute button works, right? And I was like, oh, God, Lord have mercy. I would say that was the height of my anxiety right there, that moment. I was thrown into an instant like, oh, Lord, have mercy. Um, my whole team just heard me blankety blank at my kids. <laughs> and that was really embarrassing. And so the, the funny thing about it, though, so I was really embarrassed. I was completely stressed out and thoroughly embarrassed by it. I got several text messages and emails that were like, that was like the best thing ever. I, they people were like so act like really happy to hear me be a human being like to be normal. Um, someone emailed me was like that was like the realest thing that I've heard all week. It was like the best thing that I've heard because a lot of us were dealing with the same things, but I just happened to be the one that got caught like really kind of barking and like snapping. And one, 
it helped people go, yes, I'm not the only one. But two, it actually helped me realize, like, you're going to have to um, exercise more patience with these children because if you said anything to them that you didn't want your team to hear, then you shouldn't say it to them at all. You know what I'm saying? So it actually kind of put me in a place to where I was going to have to be a lot more understanding um, towards them because we were in this together and I didn't want it to be a negative experience of just like our anxieties bouncing off of each other the whole time we were at home. That would be disastrous for the children. It would be disastrous for me as a mother. It would be an epic fail. Um, so I, I think at that, that was the point and the height of my anxiety where I realized that I had to change the paradigm. I had to really rethink how I was going to proceed with homeschooling and balancing out my work and my children's lives um, to be a more balanced, emotionally balanced mother for them to not turn this into like the worst year of their life. (laughs) For a lot of industries, for a lot of professionals, this pandemic has really like the kind of ethos is that people are to become superhuman. Licensed clinical social worker Deja Maynard offers insight about Shanette's situation and the all-too-familiar challenge of juggling kids and work during the pandemic. You know, if you're you're working from home, and that's also where you're parenting and all these other things, your humanness showing up, you know, <laughs> should almost be expected. And instead, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, people are are sort of like been people are in a position to be embarrassed by that and so I feel like that's sort of where my mind initially came up that there's just just this weird um uh kind of like uh juxtaposition about how human the pandemic has kind of made us made us realize that we are or it's kind of forced us to be so to speak juxtaposition to this like you know you gotta do more you should be available you should you know, like all of these kind of like internal narratives about what we should be doing and how we should be handling it. And that ultimately turning into, you know, some pretty unrealistic expectations for people. So that's kind of the first piece. The second piece though, like specific to that profound insight that, that you know, this person had, like, you know, it read, like sort of her encouraging herself to do a little bit more probing, like probing deeper, like, well, what is it about this that made me embarrassed? And and realizing that it's literally about, I wouldn't want anyone to know that I talk to my kid like that. It seems like it really set up the circumstances for her to consider how her child is there impacted and encourage her to make a change. And I think that that is phenomenal. I'd be like, I, you know, if if she was sort of my client, I'd be praising her not only for the grace that she's extending, but also for her willingness to, to sort of like take ownership of what's happening. For many parents, the struggle to incorporate their new normal and meet realistic parenting expectations was a challenge. Therapist Deja Maynard. I think a lot of people might had already kind of had some ideas about how they could improve maybe their work-life balance or, you know, their boundaries around uh, work as to how it, it's impacting their family. I mean, I think the the pandemic, or at least it's been in my experience, the pandemic really uh, exploded people's concerns around that because there wasn't any any more like strict demarcation between like when you're at home and when you're at work in the ways that, you know, you had previously been able to to encourage people to use that as that kind of like signaling right like when you hit the door from coming home from your office you're in mommy mode and it's okay to leave everything behind but really you know if the kitchen table became your office too as as well as where your kids you know where you have dinner with your kids or wherever those strategies no longer worked and so I, I would say people really kind of struggled with sort of feeling like they just were not doing a good job because they did not know how. And I would just encourage people like you would not know how. (laughs) So we could work together to create some realistic expectations. Over the course of the pandemic, many people were trying to figure out their new normal. For many, the unknowns were humbling and caused people like Derek to reflect on what's most precious in life. 
I want to be a man that stands up and works and help provide and, and be there for his family. I want to be in my daughter's life, not just a man that says I want to be in the daughter's life and have to fight for, uh, you know, um, visiting and, and so forth and have custody and blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to separate from my wife neither. Derek has worked the majority of his adult life. When married in 2017, he was the sole provider for his family. However, the past couple of years have been rocky, with unstable employment and a range of health problems. And to complicate the situation further, Derek has sickle cell anemia. And due to a torn meniscus, his wife now depends on a walker to get around. Together, they are trying to earn a living, care for each other and their child, but it hasn't been easy. I'm trying to be a man that stands there and holds the hand of his wife and child and being their life and work to continue to be able to try to put food on the table. And at the moment, I'm unable to. So, yes, I am also relying upon the government to help assist me with that as well. I just pray for us to um, be able to survive. I, I, I mean, I, I prayed on everything, just praying and praying and praying and which, you know, hoping that something would come around. Because it, it just really happened tough. It's rough, man. I might need a therapist, man. I can't front. Asantawa Boykin is a registered ER nurse in Sacramento, California. I don't think that I have, as someone who's been on the front line, has, has been intentional about unpacking the trauma of last year. Um, I would encourage that anyone would go about doing that, but there are moments where I'm just like, one, I lived. Um, <laughs> two, oh my God, nobody close to me died from this. Shit. Like, it, it, it's a waiver between feeling grateful and guilty um, and feeling like I, you know, thrown away and also praised at the same time. Like, oh my God, you're a hero. Like, but why wouldn't you wear masks, though? So people didn't get sick, right? Uh, so yeah, no, I might have to go see a therapist for myself specifically, but not today. Asantawa's expressed emotions of survivor's remorse aren't uncommon. Clinical therapist Deja Maynard. People are often conditioned to consider how much worse someone else has it. And while I think that there's some admirable <laughs> kind of like motivations behind that you know you're you're hoping to teach people to become more empathetic you know become less self-centered what ultimately is happening or at least what i often find to be happening is people are invalidating their own emotional experiences as a result of thinking about how much worse someone else has it and i and so as such i'm like yes it, it it might be different for someone else, but that does not mean that you're not feeling any less of what you're feeling. The pandemic has forced us to face harsh realities, and no one has been closer to the heartbreak and pain caused by COVID than our frontline workers, like Amy Arland, the RN from Fresno we heard from earlier. The breakthrough moment for me was um, one of my therapists, I swear I'll be with him forever, is just teaching me... Um, I don't even know. I think the biggest part of it was learning how to get past the fear. Um, you know, fear is the mind killer. It's the one thing that really holds so many people back from doing the things that they need to do in their lives. And I lived in so much fear all of the time that it was what he called radical acceptance. I had to learn to get past the fear and find my courage to keep going. For Making Contact, I'm Anita Johnson reporting from Berkeley, California. been listening to Life During COVID on Making Contact. Thanks to all the participants and experts who contributed to this week's episode. If you suspect that you or someone you know may be struggling with anxiety or depression, contact the National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-HELP. If you've enjoyed this episode, please write and review us twice on Apple Podcasts. 
And then please share with your friends and family via Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. We're Making Contact Project. To learn more about us and access other episodes for free, visit us at radioproject.org. The Making Contact team includes the Executive Director, Sonia Green, Monica Lopez, Salima Himarani, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Across America, across our listening area, hard times are hitting us again. So on the next Waggle of Monkeys with me, Graham Rice, here on WJFF, songs about hard times plus new music and more. Join me, please, on Sunday afternoon at 3. Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Untold Stories of Central Minnesota. This is arts and cultural heritage producer Jeff Carmack. In today's installment, we're going to be talking with photographer and historian Jay Grammett. Recently, he was a presenter at the Stearns History Museum's Breakfast Club as he discussed his efforts to document the experiences of everyone, of folks who lived through and served in World War II. And now that we are in the year 2021, there's an urgency to his project, because as you well may realize, the number of World War II veterans diminishes every day. So it's important to gather what history we can from them firsthand, so that as time goes on, we truly do never forget. So, Jay, welcome to the Untold Stories of Central Minnesota. How about uh, you just introduce yourself and, well, how did you get started with this project? Well, uh, thanks for having me, Jeff. My name is Jay Grammond, and I am from Princeton, Minnesota, and I have studied uh, World War II for a couple of decades now. Um, I really got in uh, into it in earnest when I was working for Elk River Area Community Ed, I started up a World War II history series where we had um, veterans coming in, or not even just veterans, but people from that era coming in uh, almost once a month to talk to a group of folks that would sign up for the class. And we did that for 13 years. So I got to know a lot about World War II and got to meet a lot of veterans and Holocaust survivors and various players in the, in that time. So. Yeah. Well, I think that is really cool is it's something that, you know, over the last few years or so, it's become more and more obvious that, you know, we really need to hear the stories of the people that were involved with world war two, because this is a big deal. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) It's very it's a very big deal where the current numbers that that I've seen and I haven't seen any updated numbers this is pre covid that we are losing about 245 World War II veterans per day mm. in the country and um there's about 300 and just over 325,000 remaining out of 16 million total yeah. in World War II so Minnesota has about 7800 remaining so Wow. You know, that I've got to act on this now. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, these, these folks are approaching 100 years old. Yeah. You know? And, you know, that that's, it's, you know, time creeps up on all of us, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's sometimes, I guess, it's a little shocking when you have that realization. Oh, wait, no, this, this is happening. And, you know, it's, it's not that there's that much to be done about preventing it, but you know, collecting the stories. Um, right. I remember, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg started doing this years and years and years ago. Um, uh, following, um, Oh geez, the movie. Um, yeah. Easy uh, company. 
Well, yeah, yep, yep. The Easy Company, there was that, and then also it was Schindler's List too. I yes, think that's right. kind of where where it started as well. Just just recording the stories of the people who were there, you know, experiencing this this event in different ways, um, and you know, just recording these stories is so important. And I think we're realizing how important that is nowadays, um, just because. You know, unfortunately, with with the political stuff that's been going on, it's easy to kind of just ignore it or sweep things away or say, oh, nothing happened. Um, but that's not the case. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not reality. Yeah. <laughs> I think on top of that, there's just so, so many news stories now with all the ways that you can get news on TV, not just TV and radio anymore, but all the social media things. The stories can get drowned out really easy, but... I think it's so important this uh we have a we have a you know number certain number of years left to talk to people that were actually there on this major world event uh and then that's going to be that time is going to be gone and we're just going to read about it in textbooks after that so I always encourage people if they know someone or they have a neighbor that's World War 2 era even if it's not a vet if it's some other home front or uh, POW or whatever, find out their story and sit and listen to them, or at least get their if they have their memoirs written down, get a copy of that and learn about their story. Oh, absolutely, yeah, that's something with the Stearns History Museum. They've got big exhibits going on. Yeah, um, you know what what was life like back then, and it, it's kind of shocking. <laughs> that I went through that exhibit after my talk over there last weekend. It's a fantastic exhibit, so. I'll put a plug in for that to get people need to get out there and see that it's really well done. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, what are what are some of the examples of um, some of the folks that you have talked with? What kind of variety of folks have you have you spoken with? Oh, um, for the program, I would I would try to find anybody that I could in any facet of World War II. Primarily, it was veterans, so we had veterans from all the different theaters um you know europe and the pacific and we had veterans that were prisoners of war we had even one time we had a german soldier speak he fought the entire war on the eastern front over in russia and that was a whole interesting different story from him and then we also had um, holocaust survivors and japanese american internment camp survivors and uh, we also had people from the home front that were back home uh, building ships and ammunition and collecting tin cans and the whole nine yards. So I, yeah. I tried to share as much of the whole story as I could find people to tell it. So Yeah, it is because it literally is a different world. I mean, the collecting of tin and rubber and, you know, the different resources that were needed. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the Rations. Country, yeah. Wow. Yeah, the country uh, came together in different ways. Right after my talk at the History Museum, uh, there was a man that was in the audience that I was talking to in the lobby, and people would come up to me like, oh, my dad was in World War II or my uncle or whatever. Well, this guy had that, but he also, he could remember, he was a young boy during that time, and he can remember going around collecting uh, soup cans and whatever he could for the recycling effort. So there's an there's a lot of interesting stories there, even in the that next generation that grew up as kids experiencing this. So, oh, absolutely, and you know, this is. I mean, it's <laughs> it, it's almost like an easy thing to say that this changed our country, um, but you know, it, it really did. And I mean, there there are things that that happened, um, and you know, people coming together that. You know, everything was different. If you look at, like, you know, the 1930s or even the early 1940s, um, you know, 10 years later, the world was very different. And oh, yeah. that's kind of something that's a little bit hard to grasp sometimes. Well, and, and until you get invested in learning about it and learn these stories and talking to the veterans and stuff to learn about that, you're not really going to get much of a grasp for what it was like back then. And I think it's really good stuff to know. Like these, these veterans and the people living through this era uh, that were of that age of, you know, 18 to 
into their 20s, those people grew up as kids through the Depression, and oftentimes their parents were World War I veterans or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, they grow up as kids through the Depression, then they graduate from high school and they're off to Europe fighting uh, you know, over there. And they had quite a, quite a life. Um, and then they come back and their, uh, the economy starts to boom. They've got all these veterans over there, and they've the uh, you know the cars of the 1950s kind of are a good exhibit of the uh, those boom times of the economy, and they start building interstate highways, and people are traveling. So the economy really changed after the war with uh, all that kind of stuff. So you know, mm-hmm. houses in the suburbs and the highways and all that stuff. Yeah, it, it it is. It's not just time moving forward. It's it's there. There are these different um, variables and and factors that you know kind of shaped where we went. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know I've I've been doing this the the untold stories of Central Minnesota here for a while. Um, oh, about like oh geez, it's been it's coming up on twelve years now. Oh my wow. gosh. <laughs> That's cool, and you know that's that's one of the things I've noticed is this this slow change of history because it does it moves so slowly that you don't notice that it's changing until just one day you look around and everything's different, and you know then then there are some big events that come up and like you know I like to use COVID for an example because that mm-hmm. that has radically changed the, the way everything happens. Um, and you know, we, we think we understand what's happening. Um, but there are these subtleties that, that we don't until later. Um, right. like for example, what we're doing right now, uh, we're talking over a computer from, you know, miles and miles away. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in early, uh, 2020 that wouldn't have been the case you know i'd I'd come and track you down and we'd be sitting together you know (laughs) yeah so there there are things there are those things like that that they shift you know and right it's it's on one hand it's kind of cool but on the other hand it it can be kind of spooky if you're not paying attention yeah and all of a sudden you're kind of left behind in a way well right and i think we're really living well i don't know if this is a silly statement but we're living through a historical moment right now i think (laughs) i mean like you said we don't really we're living our day-to-day trying to figure out how to get through to the next upcoming days or whatever but when you look back at this how much it's changed i'm sitting here watching the olympics and there's all the different protocols that they're trying to follow and certain athletes are they get over there and then they test they have it and then they can't compete and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden somebody else has an opportunity because of that and all None of that stuff would have happened so much before oh, yeah. the different things. So it's it'll be interesting down the road to look back and study this this whole year and a half or two years or whatever it ends up being. Yeah. As a as an event. Yeah, as as an event that changed everything. Yeah, it yeah. totally did. Yeah, for the whole world at all at the same time. Yeah. Which yeah. makes it very unique in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And similar to World War Two, that involved everybody. It wasn't just a couple of countries going at it. It was everybody pretty much. So Yeah, it was everyone all over the world. It was it yeah. was they didn't call it World War Two for nothing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean if you make that kind of uh, that sort of parallel as far as how how many people it affects. Mm-hmm. we're going through that kind of time right now so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and you know i mean it sounds like we're kind of going off topic but not really because i mean world war ii it was a massive event that had just it radically changed every country and you know what we're going through with covid is that's happening too we just it, it's not as obvious right. um but you know everybody's trying to do their part even if we're not sure what our part is but it's you know it's all these small parts that come together that help us get through and i think that's what your um your program is is really pointing out is you know everyone's got their small parts that they play mm-hmm. um you know not everybody can be you know, well, not everybody even wants to be like, you know, a Congressional Medal of Honor winner or right. or something like that. But everybody plays a part. 
And I think that that's kind of what you're getting at here with, um, you know, the, the veteran stories is, yep. is what, what, what are the parts that people played? Right. And we wanted to keep the veteran stories alive, but also everyone else's stories we had, you know, the, the, uh, Holocaust, uh, survivor stories were pretty, po- very powerful. And so were the Japanese American internment, uh, stories we had. Tuskegee Airman and that story and he he really uh Ken Wofford was his name he really pushed uh the idea that it was everybody just talks about the Tuskegee Airman like the pilots part of it but he says it was took the whole team was he really downplayed the pilot part of it and that you know the mechanic was important the ground control people everybody involved in the process was were just as important for the overall success Oh, absolutely. Those, you know, those kind of stories and just so many veterans that I'd talk to when I'd ask them if they would speak for our program, and some of them would be like, well, I don't know if anybody really would be interested in my story. And I just kind of, I wouldn't laugh at them, but I'd like, you know, every we do. We want to hear your story. Yeah. Yeah, like, no. Yeah, don't, if you, no matter how trivial it might seem to you of what you did, it still played that part. Um, whether it was you came in afterwards and guarded POWs at the end of the war or, you know, kept uh, peacekeeping missions after the fact or whatever, you know, stateside doing something, it all played a part. You're listening to 88.1 FM KVSC and the Untold Stories of Central Minnesota, where today we're talking with historian and photographer Jay Grammont about how he is documenting experiences of folks from the World War II era. And as we get back into the conversation, we talk a little bit more about the methods he's been using to do so. So um, you've got, okay, so you got this program that you're doing, and uh, the way I found out about it was through the Stearns History Museum. Yeah. But um, do you, you do this elsewhere as well? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yep. So... Um no longer doing the history series because I'm not at uh, Community Ed anymore in Elk River. So um, during uh, 2020, I started creating some programs to do online because I knew that the Community Ed programs statewide would need some virtual classes because I just came from that world after 15 years. And it's always, it's generally a a classroom in-person kind of scenario. Yeah. And so... I came up with classes, and one of them was this um, veterans, so I could keep my veteran stuff going. I did a program called One Last Time World War II Veteran Stories, and that's now in two parts so far. Um, the other Last week I, for, for the museum, I did the part one, and just highlighting you know six or seven of the veterans that, and people that spoke for me during my history series. Um, and so they can kind of keep that going. That's in a two-part thing. And I'm also developing a program now about uh, veteran memorials across Minnesota. I'll be starting to present that one this fall. Um, yeah, because the there's actually quite a few of those. Yeah, there yeah. and there are quite a variety of different styles of how they honor their veterans and stuff, uh-huh. too. So I'm going to be putting that together for fall and... Um, well, actually, that's 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 very cool because if you think about it, you know, I've I've done this before too. I'll, I'll just go somewhere and and you know maybe some park someplace and you yeah. know maybe I'll be going up to Little Falls to interview somebody and I'll be like, well, I got some time to kill. I'm going to wander around this park. Oh, look, a veterans memorial. Where did that come from? And yeah. <laughs> so I'd like to kind of get uh, create some images of those things so people can see them, but then try to find out some of the backstory on certain ones like was this an eagle scout project or was this mm-hmm. vfw and legion or who what's there's always some sort of story on how it came to be and how they decided on you know should we put up black granite should we do statues you know yeah. there's so many different ones out there it'll be really interesting to show people some of the different styles yeah i'm kind of curious too yeah because there are a bunch of statues and 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 things and this is like well okay who made the choices and what choices were made that's cool yeah and they're often found at uh county if you're in a county seat town there's often memorials at the courthouse 
grounds. Otherwise, some cities just have them in a like a Lions Park or some sort of park, you know, as you're going through town and mm-hmm. special well, areas. But yeah, so that's that's a fun project. I've been kind of working on that over the years, but I decided to put it into a program and share it out with other people. Well, very cool. Yeah. Well, if people wanted to get a hold of you, um, how would they go ahead and how would they do that? Well, my email is uh, my name, but it's all one word. So it's J-A-Y-G-R-A-M-M-O-N-D at gmail.com. Um, my website is J and Photography, but just the letter J and then gramandphotography.com. You'll be able to see some of my um, general photography there, and then sometimes I put some projects. Like I did, uh, if we have time, I would mention a couple more things. Oh, for uh, sure, yeah. Uh, I, uh, uh, a couple years ago, I decided to, a way to um, keep the memory alive of these veterans was I, I bought myself a black kind of like letterman's jacket, but not with leather, just the, uh, whatever it's wool or whatever it is oh, yeah. you know like but i bought that just plain and then i i collected unit patches for a couple of years of these world war ii units and there's so many of them that i started narrow had to narrow it down to um trying just to have patches from people that spoke for my program and then i sewed them onto this jacket um and it's quite a conversation starter in grocery stores and whatnot is kind of fun but i've got quite you know, it's not totally covered but i've got them all strategically placed uh, and it, it's a great conversation starter and then I, I built a website showing the patches and i'm trying to add information to those so they can then if they want to i if they strike up a conversation i'll hand them a business card and with the link to that site nice and they can learn more about it that way too just another way to kind of be constantly teaching people about uh, World War II. Um, so I got that going. And then one other thing that I'm just starting now that I was going to start in 2020 was to um, actually connect with veterans and interview them in person uh, on video and start a database of those interviews and then also take a portrait of them, maybe holding a portrait of themselves from back in those days or some item from then and and then give them a portrait of it but have that also to go along with the collection and so i've got um three of those done now i start putting those up on youtube and and so people can start to watch them so that's that's something i'm working on currently besides these programs nice 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 yeah it is all about just communication and connection really and yeah, there's, there's somebody comes up and says, "Hey, that that's an interesting thing you got going on there." And then all of a sudden, you've got it's almost like a partnership. <laughs> yeah, and that um, if and I always want to. Uh, I'm a big lifelong learner, and I was in that industry for about 20 years prior to this, and so I'm not. And now I'm in it. Just in a, I'm doing the educating now more so than organizing it. But um, if people wanted to check that out, my YouTube channel is J Graham and Photography. That says three words. Just search that, and you'll find. I have various projects, um, but um, I'm starting to put my veterans. I've got two of them posted so far. I've got one more to post, and then I've got some other interviews lined up soon here. So, this that idea of that we talked about earlier. I gotta get these done, and yeah. <laughs> time is ticking. But. Oh, yeah. um, uh, uh, nice, nice. So there's something that kind of has clicked with me. Um, are are you or part of your family, um, I don't know, attached to World War II somehow? How did, how did you get interested in all this? Um, well, that's a good question. I, I, um, I was trying to think of how I first got started interested in this. For some reason, I connect with people from that era really well. I, I, when I was first in college, I worked in nursing homes, and I, it was so easy for me to sit and listen to the, they wanted to talk and tell their stories and just have somebody to talk to. And there was no problem for, for me to sit there for an hour or two hours or whatever it took to listen to their stories. And sometimes it was the same stories every day, but mm-hmm. I just had to, something in me that had that patience to listen, but not only just sit there and listen, but I was actually interested in 
engaging them in what they were saying and asking them about it and stuff. And so it, it might have been there because uh, even then, my those first days in my when I was working in nursing homes, I met some veterans. I met one guy that had been at the Battle of the Bulge, and that's all he would tell me about it. Just that he had been there. He he wouldn't. Whenever I whenever I prompted him, he wouldn't even talk anything about it other than that he was there. And so that might have sparked something early on too, uh, with that. And then, uh, but my, my family, I, I haven't been in the military, but my family has a pretty rich history of it here and there. My, both of my brothers were in the army during peacetime during more modern times, but I have, mm-hmm. uh, my father-in-law was in the army, uh, in between Korea and Vietnam. I have cousins that were in Vietnam. Uh, I have cousins and nephews that are in the military, you know, and all the way back to when I start looking through family history stuff, we have relatives that were uh, fighting for the Union in the Civil War, and I believe there was uh, one or two probably in the Revolutionary War. And so there's uh, history all the way along there. I have a, and actually, yeah, I have even not some of the modern wars. I um, I was just thinking about that this morning. I have a my wife's cousin was uh over in i don't know if it was desert storm or hmm. one of the gulf wars back back in the 90, early 90s i guess it was anyway she was there but so we've got quite a history throughout the family of people in the military and i guess maybe it was my just interest in people's stories nice. <laughs> started i started i i should say i started when i was working at elk river there was a guy named jim church that um was a world war ii vet and my boss would talk to him quite often. I didn't really know him, but I'd see him there. And then uh, he, my boss's father, was a veteran who fought over in Italy, like over by Anzio and some of those early invasion of Italy type things. So he helped me get connected to to Jim, who then I then talked to, um, and he kind of helped me get this program going at Community Ed. So. Uh, he, I start my program all with him, and he's—he just has such a, quite a story. I mean, growing up in the uh, depression, and then he's off to—he started one year of engineering college in Wisconsin, wanted to be an engineer, and then then went off to war and fought through the whole. He was D-Day plus 20, 20 days after D-Day, but marched through the, all of Europe up into Germany, that whole thing, <laughs> fought at the Battle of the Bulge, everything. Then he. When the war in Europe ended, they were they were getting ready to ship him to the Pacific, like many guys did. He didn't have enough points or whatever the system was, mm-hmm. so he they gave him, you know, a little bit of time off in the states, and then he's got to get ready to go. Well, then while he was home, he got the word that he um, there was he ended the war over there, so he didn't have to go over there, and also met his wife on his future wife on a blind date while he was home. And all that, and then so that all started working out, and he went on to get his engineering degree. And that another cool part of his story, besides all his World War II stuff, was that he went on to work for the Apollo space mission. Was contacted by the at that time the newly formed NASA group, and he worked on uh, Apollo stuff all the way up from from one through uh, I think it was thirteen or eleven or something like oh, that. Oh wow! Where he was doing, uh, he was uh, one of the chief engineers on all that stuff. So, pretty pretty cool. And he did lots of other stuff, but he uh, had quite quite interesting stories. Nice, nice, yeah. nice. Well, cool. Anything else you want to toss out in there? Oh, I don't know. There's so much. I'm just encourage everybody again to go out and if you know anyone from that era, whether they're a veteran or not. Uh, try and set up a meeting and see if they'll tell you some stories about it. Because you, you know, they use the analogy of the li- the library is going to close pretty soon. You know, yeah, yeah. you can read about it after they're all gone, but it's really different when you can uh, talk to them in person. They were actually there experiencing it. So absolutely, you, know, you can have the conversation nice. with somebody who experienced it, and they yeah. Can- it's, it's way different. It's very important. Yeah. 
Yeah. So. Well, right on, Jay. Well, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is pretty exciting. And we've been talking with photographer and historian Jay Grammond here on the Untold Stories of Central Minnesota. And Jay's work in recording and documenting the experiences of the World War II era continues. And you can get a hold of him to share your story or the story of maybe a relative.